Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Forge. We're going to jump right in today. We are continuing in our study in the book of Galatians. We're going to take it from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I'm sorry, 11 through 14. Actually, 11 through 14. And before we get into it, I want to give you a cross-reference that you can look at in your own time, and that is out of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us uh, a chapter of promise. Some people have called this the Hall of Faith. And there you will find a study on 11, I'm sorry, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, a study on God's perfect choosing. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, and David are all there. And in verse 26, there's an interesting thing in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ. And it's an interesting statement because the incarnation had not happened. In other words, Moses took the reproach for the sake of Christ over all the riches of Pharaoh and being in Pharaoh's house in a time that was what we might call BC before Christ. So think about that. Any and all Old Testament saints who were saved were made so because of Christ. There's no other way of salvation except through Christ. And so these Old Testament died. Old Testament saints, rather, died in the faith looking forward to the time of the Savior. And today in the New Testament, as saints, we die looking backward at the finished work of the Savior. So there's never been a time in all of eternity past where the Lord's church was not in the mind of God. I'd like to share with you from chapter 10 of the Westminster Confession it's entitled Effectual Calling, and it begins with the following. This is a quote. All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so they come most freely being made willing by his grace. Along with that, the I encourage you in your own time, to look up and study and read and look at the scriptural references for the Belgic Confession, Article 16, which is entitled The Doctrine of Election, and also Article 17, which is entitled The Recovery of Fallen Man. These articles and confessions are things that I believe, but I only believe them in the extent that they follow the inspired word of God. I believe these things because they are a way of systematically putting doctrine together from all of scripture, from all of it. I believe these things because they're based on the word of God, not because they were written by the reformers of old. 
However, the reformers did make a stand on what are called the five solas. And you've heard me talk about that before many times in this podcast, the five solas, number one being scripture alone. What is meant by scripture alone is not that we go out by ourselves um, and isolate ourselves and read the Bible and come up with whatever we want to believe. That's not what scripture alone means. It does mean that the Bible alone is the highest source of authority in a Christian's life. Now, it's not the only authority that we have. We submit to government authorities. And for example, you know, I obey the speed limit. And there are many laws that we all agree to and abide by. And those are authorities in our life. However, we only follow them to the extent that they do not go against the clear teaching of the Bible. If it suddenly became illegal in my country to preach the gospel, I'm going to disobey the law and continue to teach and preach the gospel. We also don't look to Rome or any other church body to tell us what the Bible says. So when we say scripture alone, that's what we mean. Faith alone. Number two, faith alone. That means that we believe Christians are justified. Justification is to be made right with God, and this happens by faith alone in the work of Christ. Number three, grace alone. This teaches that sinners are saved by God's unearned gifts of grace. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast, as the Bible tells us in Ephesians. Number four, Christ alone. And simply what we mean by Christ alone is that he is the only way of salvation. He has an exclusive role. We're not saved through a church system, a list of good works, penance, or any other man-made way of atonement that we might come up with on our own. Christ is the only way. And the number five, the last one, to the glory of God alone, to the glory of God alone, the purpose of all creation salvation, God's eternal decrees, everything you can think of, (laughs) uh, most especially as Christians, our goal is the glory of God alone. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that God may be all in all. And so this is what we believe when we say the five solas. Again, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So today, let us turn to Galatians chapter 2. I've given you all that long introduction just to get us to this point where we're actually going to read the word of God. Galatians 2, beginning at verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in a manner of the Gentiles, And not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? 
So we find here in verse 11 that the scene is changing just a little bit. We've been talking about the council in Jerusalem, and now we're shifting our attention back to the church in Antioch. Antioch was the capital city of the Roman province of Syria, and Jerusalem, the city where the council had just been held, was in Judea. And so now the council of Jerusalem is over. The decision has been made. Observation of the old covenant is not required to uh, become a Christian. Uh, you don't have to have the sign of circumcision in your body. Antioch was the first church to be established in a Gentile area. There's a large, there was a large Jewish community there at that time. And the first church to have joint worship between Jews and Gentiles. And we should pause for a moment and recognize what a radical concept this is to have Jews and Gentiles under the same roof worshiping together. You see, Jews did not fellowship with Gentiles. Jews believed, and some still do to this day, that uh, Gentiles were unclean. You don't eat with them. You don't go to their house. You don't touch them. You certainly don't eat with them. And to the Gentile mind, the pagan mindset, really, if you will, worshiping false gods, they saw Jews as being lazy and crazy. And I say that because the worship of one singular God, monotheism, was a bizarre idea. And then coupled with that, these Jews take one day off every week so they don't have to work. And they take that off and call it worship to their monotheistic theology to their God. So we see here for the first time in all of human history, the Lord Jesus is unifying the human race. He alone is the one that breaks down barriers and prejudices, and he takes complete strangers. He makes them family. And Antioch was even the first church to send out missionaries to preach specifically to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 11, the Bible tells us that Antioch was a place where those who believed in Jesus were first called Christians. Up to that time, what we know as Christianity today was seen as some kind of a Jewish cult or something strange going on within that strange religion. But we must remember that when the church was born, it was primarily made up of Jews. So it makes sense that people would think that it was a Jewish cult. Acts 13 tells us that Paul and Barnabas were co-pastors in the church in Antioch, and now Gentiles are being added in. And these first Gentiles were called little Christs as a mockery, and it stuck. And today we are called Christians. What a glorious thing to be called, and imagine hearing that for the first time. You're a new believer, and you felt that joy at being named after your Lord, Jesus Christ. So we still find Paul here in verse 11 in this church now defending his apostleship. Once again, Paul actually is standing up to Peter over this very issue that has already been settled, the very work of circumcision. So anywhere you're reading this, you can think of circumcision. You can take out the word circumcision and put in works-based salvation. It's important for you to understand, dear Christian, that if we could go back in time and ask the Judaizers, and these were the ones coming into the church, saying that you had to receive the sign of the old covenant, 
if you were to ask these Judaizers if they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they would certainly say yes. The problem is not that they didn't believe Jesus was, was the Messiah. They just had the wrong idea of what he should be. They did not see him as the lamb who would take away their sins. They were Jews and they were convinced that they already had the full favor of God because why? They were children of Abraham. They received the mark of circumcision, the mark of the old covenant. So in their thinking, they didn't have any reason to be forgiven. They already had a special standing with God. And in their thinking, salvation had come to the Gentiles, which is precisely why the Gentiles needed to receive the rite of circumcision. So if we go back in time and we ask a Judaizer, they would say, yes, we believe Jesus is the Savior. And you need to realize this because there are plenty of false systems today that will tell you that Jesus is the Savior. And they will use the same words that Christians use, words like gospel, salvation, Savior, inspired word of God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Sabbath day. And they're going to use the same words that you do as a Christian, but they're going to twist their meanings. And that's the way it is when you're dealing with a false teacher or false doctrine. Just before I begin to record this podcast episode, uh, I was watching a thing on YouTube, and I'm not even going to mention the name of the church because I don't want people going out there and getting confused. But there was a tremendous amount of false teaching going forward, adding to the work of the gospel, not even in reality, not even teaching or preaching the gospel. And yet they use the same words that I do. Holy Spirit, Jesus, God. They would say that God is doing a work. Well, see, I would say that too. But it has a different meaning for them than it does for me. So beware, dear Christian. Just because somebody's using your language does not mean that they're talking about the same thing that you're talking about. So that leads us to the clash between Peter and Paul. When you look at the lives of Peter and Paul, you find that, for example, even the book of Acts can be divided into two parts where you have part one, that's the ministry of Peter from chapters one through 12 and part two being the ministry of Paul from chapters 13 through 28, both of these men were used by God in a powerful way to establish the Lord's church. They were chosen by Jesus, uh, resurrected Jesus to be apostles. They both were saved by grace through faith. They both had uh, visions or dreams. And so you see that there was a lot of common ground between these two men. Yet, Paul says, I withstood him to his face. You know, folks, we are to defend the truth of the gospel. That is one reason why I do this podcast. I do this podcast because throughout my life, I've been affected by false teaching. And I want to put this out there. For anyone who might hear it so that they could hear from me the gospel of grace and the, and the gospel of truth. 
You see, Christians have been declared righteous by God himself, and we receive this salvation through faith in Christ alone. Remember that second sola, faith, and the faith is in Christ. Faith in Christ alone. So Christian, uh, there are scriptures that tell us in 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 14, if you're a leader in the church and you're listening to this today, you are to hold fast to the sound teaching of Christ. But if you are not a leader in the church and you are a Christian, guess what? You still have a responsibility. Jude 3 says you have a responsibility to defend the faith. And that is the true faith. Contend for it like a prize fighter in the ring, but with love in your heart for those who are deceived. This word withstood, where he says, I withstood him to his face. I want you to imagine a kind of defensive measure that's being put in place. The Greek word antistami is the root here. And in the form that it appears here in this scripture, we can determine that it's a verb, uh, uh, aorist, active, indicative, first person singular. What does that mean? Well, it means, if you can imagine this, a defensive posture. So I want you to kind of see Paul standing there before Peter, holding up some kind of a defensive barrier, even if you wanted to say he is opposing Peter. He is trying to hinder or forbid Peter from teaching this false gospel that you have to observe. And in this case, it was dietary law. So we are to join with Paul and oppose anyone who comes against the gospel of grace. The, the phrase there, I withstood him to his face. That pretty much means what it says, face to face. Peter and Paul collided in public. Paul confronted Peter in public because there was an offense that had been committed in public. Martin Luther put it this way, quote, and he's talking about Paul. Paul hath here no trifling matter in hand, but the chiefest article of all Christian doctrine. What is that chiefest article of all Christian doctrine that Martin Luther is talking about? It's a majestic thing. It's so important to the Christian that everything else seems to fall away when you consider this one doctrine. What is it? Well, Lutheran, I'm sorry, Luther. <laughs> I said Lutheran because the Lutheran church comes after the name Luther. <laughs> but Luther is speaking of the doctrine that is the teaching of justification by faith. Justification is that act of God whereby he declares you righteous. It's by faith in Christ that we receive and believe this justification. And so you say, well, what is faith? The Bible tells us again, going back to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, that is a mouthful. What does it mean? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. For. Well, the substance of things hoped for is the assurance that every believer has because of Christ. So when you think about substance, I want you to think about assurance that you have because of Christ. And then evidence of things not seen. What is that evidence? It is a conviction in your soul because of Christ. 
you have a conviction inside of you that was not present before Jesus Christ. So I know by faith in Christ that God justifies me. And again, justification, that's God declaring you righteous. See, there's a problem with that. <clears throat> and the problem is, is that you're not righteous, yet God says that you are. And this is why Christ came. And I want you to follow me on this if you can. You see, Christ took the punishment of the unrighteous sinner. When you believe that and you place your faith in that, and that his work on the cross was completed, he was punished for you. And that was done on your behalf. It's a very personal thing. That's why you will hear some Christians say, do you know Christ as your personal savior? It's because he completed the work on the cross on your behalf. In other words, you believe as a Christian that the punishment has been executed or the time has been served or the penalty for the lawbreaker has been paid, whatever analogy you want to use. But when you believe that, you are saved eternally in Christ and because of Christ, justice has been satisfied. You see, God is the judge and he becomes both the just and the justifier. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean this, a good judge must uphold the law. A good judge must mete out the punishment for the law breaker. So being a just judge, God remained true to his character and his attributes as well as the law and the punishment. You and I broke the law. The punishment was poured out upon Jesus Christ. So God remains true to his character and being the righteous judge. He is the justifier, also remaining true to his character and his attributes and displaying his love, mercy, and grace. So you see, he is both. There is a wrath of God. There is an anger of God. And there is love, mercy, and grace of God. Paul uses the phrase, he was to be blamed when he talks about Peter, Peter's hypocrisy. You see, Peter is guilty here of what some have called his own self-condemnation. He acts one way in front of the Jews, and then when the Jews are not there and it's Gentiles only, he acts another way in front of the Gentiles. And I want you to imagine the disappointment and the hurt feelings the questions that may have come up. If you are a Gentile and maybe you've even heard the gospel from Peter himself and you accepted it and you became a Christian and Peter, this Jew, is now calling you his brother or his sister in Christ. He accepted you and now he's treating you as a second-class Christian because these Judaizers have come in. So I want you to see two important things about this. Number one, Peter condemned himself by his own actions. There are actions that we can take and the punishment and the condemnation being blamed for it, if you will, is in the very act itself. It doesn't come from a group of bystanders. It's not something that jurors will come to in a jury box, but the verdict is in the very act itself. 
Now, Peter did not lose his salvation, but he was guilty of taking a position with the Judaizers that he knew is wrong. And then the second point, Peter was condemned already by the previous action of the Jerusalem council. So remember at this point, Peter placed himself in the camp of the Judaizers. Now it's subtle, but Peter had, at least for a moment in time, joined with the Judaizers in casting doubt on Paul's message. So remember, the Jerusalem council just ruled on this very issue. And now we see Peter the one who many see as the number one apostle. He's the prominent leader in the early church, and now he's playing the hypocrite. Now, with that said, if you've listened to this podcast for very long, you have probably heard me say this somewhere else in another episode. Take it easy on Peter. I feel that preachers and teachers pick on Peter. He's an easy target. Throughout scripture, it seems like he says the wrong thing or he acts without thinking. And we need to recognize that even though Peter had his share of mistakes, the Lord always restored him. Our Lord loved Peter. And Peter loved our Lord. And when I look at Peter, I see myself. So listen, Christian, dear friend, I would encourage you not to pick on Peter because you are just like him. You may have a zeal and a love for the Lord, but guess what? Sometimes you don't do the right thing. And it doesn't mean you're not a Christian anymore. It just means you made a mistake. It just means you made a mistake. So if you take anything from the life of Peter, remember that you can be restored. Remember that God forgives. You can make a mistake, and it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian anymore. It just means you got a little misguided Maybe you acted or you spoke without thinking. So we're going to move on now, take a look at verse 12. And we find the cause of this clash between Paul and Peter. Paul says that Peter stands condemned. The full verse is this, for before certain men came from James, he, that is Paul, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. You may recall uh, from the last uh, episode that I dropped, I made a reference about food being made, uh, being offered to idols, and Christians had uh, issue with that. Some would not eat the food that was given to idols or offered to idols, and other Christians did not have a conviction about that. And I related this to issues that are adadophria meaning they are indifferent to the message of the gospel. And I want to emphasize to you that there are things that Christians can disagree about. And we still remain brothers and sisters in Christ because they are non-essential. So people can be so dogmatic about things which have no impact when it comes to the gospel. And how surprised we're going to be when we get to the end of life. Life is done. And we find that not only were you wrong about some, some insignificant thing, but I was wrong too. And yet, here we are, still saved by God's amazing grace. You know, our text tells us that these men, these Judaizers, came from James. So it looks like these men were sent, men were sent out from James to enforce the exact opposite of what the council under his leadership, it just ruled was acceptable. So which is it? 
Did James say one thing at the council and then turn around and change his mind and send out enforcers to do just the opposite of what he had just said at the council? And again, I want to call your attention to another passage, and that passage is Acts 15, 24. And it says this, we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. So friends, I believe that these Judaizers continue to sow their seeds of lies and they were in defiance of the apostles' doctrine and they have come from James, but they're not representing James or the Jerusalem church correctly. They're not representing the decision that was made concerning the gospel of grace. And that brings us to Paul and Peter. And I want to take a look at what drove their decisions. I believe that Paul's position is driven by charity and love. God had given Paul the mission to the Gentiles. And because of the love of Christ, Paul now had a love for Gentiles. First Corinthians nine, we learned that there were times when Paul was a Gentile to the Gentile, a Jew to the Jews, to the weak, he became weak. And it says that he is free, but he became a servant to all. He even states in first Corinthians nine 22, that I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now what Paul is doing there is different than what Peter is doing here. Because Paul stressed that we never compromise on the essentials of our faith, the gospel of grace through faith without works. So yes, you can be a Jew to the Jew and a Gentile to the Gentile and to the weak, you can be weak. It doesn't mean that you're playing the part of the hypocrite. You're doing all of these things that you do for the grace, for the gospel of grace. You see Peter's position was driven by intimidation and cowardice. And in Acts 10, Peter learned at the house of Cornelius that all the foods were now considered clean. God had given Peter a vision that all the foods that were once condemned under the Old Testament law as being unclean, well, now they're being called clean. And Peter, being a Jew, is now free to eat with the Gentiles and to eat whatever they were eating. Peter sat down and ate with the Gentiles. God had declared the unclean to now be clean. It should have been a settled matter for Peter. Indeed, it was known to him through special revelation of the Holy Spirit. And Peter and all the others were now free and did not have to eat what we would recognize today as kosher food. Yet, we see Peter here doing just the opposite. The consequence of all of these actions taken by Peter were that he had others follow him. In verses 13 and 14, it shows us that Peter not only withdrew, but he had people that followed him. The Bible tells us that even Barnabas was carried away. And you need to think about Barnabas because he's one of the elders in the church at Antioch, and he and Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> had both gone out on a missionary journey, <clears throat> and they had both gone to the council 
in Jerusalem. These two people, Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and Barnabas, had no doubt prayed, taught, ministered, and suffered together. They had gone out to the missionary field together. Barnabas is one of the people who came to Paul's defense in Acts 9.27, shortly after Saul had been converted to Christianity on that road to Damascus. So you look at this word hypocrisy. Paul accuses Peter of playing the hypocrite. What does that mean? Well, in Greek theater, they would use a mask. And sometimes you couldn't even tell who the real actor was because the actor wore a mask. And that's where this word comes from. Peter and Barnabas are both wearing a mask. They're not showing their true selves. And Paul calls Peter out for it. Any kind of hypocrisy like this, and specifically in this case, it's a radical departure from the freedom that we have in Christ. See, Peter was enjoying the freedom of the gospel whenever the Judaizers were not around, and yet he would deny that very same freedom to the Gentile believers when the Judaizers showed up. So what makes a hypocrite? Obviously, we know a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and he does something else. You know, he says one thing and lives differently. He doesn't practice what he preaches. But we should also note that none of us myself included, not you, dear listener, none of us are um, free from making this kind of mistake. In other words, we can all make this mistake. If Peter could fall for it along with Barnabas, then you and I sure can. We know from Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, if you want to go back and hear the commentary on that, I encourage you to go back and listen to the episodes before this one. But you see that from the beginning of Galatians, Paul brought out this concept of not attempting to please men. He says there in Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It seems that Paul takes man-pleasing over God-pleasing very seriously. Peter even says essentially the same thing in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter says we ought to obey God rather than men. So we know that Peter knows better by his own admission. So what happened? What happened here? What happened to the lesson he learned at Cornelius' house? The deeper question for me is, what's the motivation behind it? What makes a person go against their convictions? Well, it's fear. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. This word perfect here has the sense of being complete. We're not talking about sinless perfection, but a complete love. So I suggest that Peter needed the Holy Spirit's help in being more complete and more full in his love, not only for the Lord, but for the Gentiles whom the Lord was calling into this new covenant. See, Peter was intimidated. 
He didn't follow his follow his own words from earlier. He sought to please men, these Judaizers, rather than pleasing God. You see, friends, if you try to please others instead of God, if you're trying to please sinners and hypocrites, you're going to become one yourself. In attempting to please the hypocrite, Peter became one himself. It's no different with you and me today. In fact, I believe that one reason that so-called evangelical Christianity in the West, anyway, I can speak about America, one reason that we're in the crisis that we're in today is partly because, it's not the only reason, but it is a significant reason, we attempted to make church services something that would please men. We became seeker-sensitive. And seeker-sensitive is simply another word for not giving the full truth. We are attempting to appeal to sinful flesh rather than to appeal to the spiritual man who's come awake in Christ. It's just a way of saying, sinners, you can come to my church and we promise not to offend you. No, dear Christian, the cross of Christ is offensive. The cross of Christ is offensive. And I'm not here on this podcast to make others feel good about their hatred of God and their hatred of his laws. I'm here to preach the law to the proud and grace to the humble. The reason that the cross of Christ is offensive is because it begins with the principle that you have violated God's law. You are guilty. You are not good. You are not righteous. And friends, people don't want to hear that. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that comes into the life, opens the eyes and the ears, brings that dead person to life, and allows them to see that indeed they are guilty before that judge who is just, and he will uphold the law, and he will execute punishment. It is a work of the Spirit that makes a person realize that very thing, and then call out and cling to Christ and his completed work. There's a lot of things that we can learn from Peter's failures. Number one, we can learn that ministers can make mistakes. They can do serious things um, and often can do the very thing that they were preaching against. Number two, we can't avoid or ignore false teaching. There's always going to be a consequence when you stand up for Jesus when you make that stand for Christ, but you can't remain silent when the issue strikes at the heart of the gospel. We've got an obligation to confront those who sin. And in case you think that Paul was being harsh on Peter for doing this in public, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20 tells us that you can actually rebuke someone if they're continuing in sin So they continue in sin, and you are to do it in the presence of everyone. 
Third thing we can learn, truth is more important than keeping the peace. Paul could have remained silent. Paul could have remained silent. You see, peace because of a compromised truth is not real peace at all. And frankly, there are many Bible-believing denominations in the West, and they used to be conservative. And when I say conservative, I don't mean politically. I just mean conservative in their view of Scripture. They had a high view of Scripture, and they could learn a lesson from this because you cannot have and you should not strive for peace at any cost. There are lies that have crept into the church in the West in denominations that ought to know better. They ought to know better. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I suggest that you go back and listen to other episodes because I cover this very topic in other episodes. This bond of peace that we read of in Ephesians chapter 4, it doesn't come from compromise on truth. It doesn't come from compromising the gospel. It's only found in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And it's only found there because we base it upon God's word. God's word is truth. Another thing we can take away from this is that situational ethics is ungodly ethics. Situational ethics is evil. Truth determines what is right and wrong. My opinion about truth, your opinion about truth, whatever situation I'm in, whatever society says is correct, none of that matters to truth. Truth simply is. And Christ is truth. And truth comes from outside the human experience. Truth is not the product of philosophy. Truth is not the product of random chemical combinations and chances and evolutionary processes over billions of years. Truth is found in Christ. Truth is, if you want to think of it this way, in construction, they have what's called a plumb line. A plumb line is the level. It is the thing that keeps things even and level when you're in construction. Jesus is that plumb line. And the last thing we can take away from all of this is that faithfulness to the gospel of grace. It's more than just believing it. It's living it out. You have to do it, not just say it. You've got to live it. So I want to encourage you, dear Christian, to go out into your various spheres of influence and proclaim that salvation has come and salvation is free in Christ. Let's tell others that they can be justified by God the Father through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. Until next time, thank you for listening to The Forge. And may God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance on you, be gracious to you and give you peace.
Amen. Above us, there's no.